This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments, allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome. This is Dr. Vic, and you are listening to The Mindful Experiment. Each week, we interview someone who is doing some amazing work on the mindful experiment of life. Sometimes we're interviewing someone from quantum physics, neuroscience, um, different scientists, researchers, and so much more from the entrepreneurial side to the self-development, personal development side to you name it. We're always looking for ways to find a truth, a nugget of some sort to help you inspire your life to the next level to truly discover your infinite potential. This week, I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Ronnie Bannock. She is an ophthalmologist, She's doing really some amazing things. Um, you know, Dr. Ronnie, she specializes in functional medicine. 
She applies principles of complementary and alternative medicine in conjunction with traditional medical approaches to treat chronic diseases that affect the visual system. She offers a unique approach to managing conditions such as dry eye, macular degeneration, blepharitis, migraines, uh, multiple sclerosis, myasthenia gravis, thyroid eye disease, uvitis, and other autoimmunes. Um, She is the founder of Envision Health New York City. It's a practice in New York City. Uh, She's award-winning associate professor of ophthalmology at Mount Sinai's Icon School of Medicine and also serves as a principal investigator for five multi-centered clinic trials in neuro-ophthalmology. Dr. Bannock is a member of the American Academy of Ophthalmologists Exams Development Committee and helps to set the standard for board certification in her field. She is sought out as an expert in the media and has been featured in the New York Times, Good Morning America, CBS Evening News, ABC7 Eyewitness News, CBS and New York with Dr. Max Gomez, Fox 5 News with Ernie Anestos, New York Magazine Best Doctors 2017, 18, and 19, The Washington Post, New York Tang Dynasty TV, Real Simple real simple Magazine, and she was voted Castle Connolly's top doctor in 17, 18, and 19. Um, we had a lot of fun on the podcast. We, we talked about supplements, nutrition, what you can do for eye health, macular degeneration, glaucoma, um, light therapy, blue eye, blue, blue eyes, blue light, and other things that you can do to help maximize your eye health. Uh, I thought this was critical because in what I do as a chiropractor outside of the mindful experiment is eyes are everything. And we utilize eyes for a ton of neurological stuff to determine how someone's doing in many different ways. And I thought this was great to have her on to share the nutritional side and everything she does to help in that process. So not going to take her thunder away from her anymore. This is everybody, Dr. Ronnie Bannock. Dr. Ronnie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I'm excited to have you on. I know you're very passionate about vision health and, and all those things. And uh, myself being a, a chiropractor, we, we always say the eyes are the gateway to the brain and how quality of the health of your eyes are determine the quality of health of the brain. So uh, I'm excited to get into things with you and, and really, you know, just just hear what you have to say, sharing it with the listeners and so much more. So um, let's go ahead and get started, shall we? Sure, sure, absolutely. <laughs> but before I begin, I want to know how, what got you passionate and what got you seeing vision health and eye health and those types of things being very important to uh, be part of your passion of what you do? Mm-hmm. Great question. So um, it all started when I was in college. I was just fascinated with vision and I had some uh, vision issues myself. I had to wear glasses. So um, so I was you know, really reliant on those. And, and what I realized is that you know, vision is something that we, we take for granted. You know, we, we don't usually give it a second thought unless it's taken away from us or unless we are having issues with it. And then it really becomes so debilitating. So vision is such a critical part of our lives. I would say it's, you know, I would argue it's probably the most important of our five senses. Uh, without vision, we couldn't read, we couldn't uh, use our devices, we couldn't see the friends of our loved ones. I and mean, so many, it's so critical to what we do. So, so that's why I decided to pursue vision. And the eye is a fascinating organ. You know, it's a tiny organ compared to the rest of the body, but it's so fascinating. It's so intricate in the structures and, and uh, how they all work together in the biochemistry. And so, so really for me, it was um, personal interest for, and then on top of that, the, the intellectual um, component of it that drew me to eye health. That is very awesome. I think um, it, it is. I mean, from a posture standpoint, your eyes dictate everything. You know, it, it, the brain's always going to be like, 
I want to see horizon at all times. And I don't care what I do to the spine, what I do to anything else. The eyes have to be at horizon. And so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's pretty interesting when it, when it comes to, you know, like people's, um, health for eyes and, 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 and those types of things, what are some things that people can, you know, like be one of the biggest steps or a one or two that they can to what maximize their eye health? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I would say one of the biggest, simplest things people can do is have a variety of, um, of healthy foods in their diet. And the healthy foods are really foods rich in antioxidants. So the eyes, in the damage to the eyes, for example, the most common causes of blindness in the U.S. are cataracts, glaucoma, and macular degeneration. And all three of these things are caused by oxidative damage. So if you can include a lot of antioxidants in your diet, you can fight against uh, some of those those uh, really debilitating conditions. So um, fruits and vegetables, for example, uh, we all know about carrots and vitamin A, good for eyes. So they're good for the retina, but they're also uh, great as antioxidants. Um, other green leafy vegetables, so for example, spinach and kale, are wonderful um, wonderful for the eyes. They actually have um, antioxidants called lutein and zeaxanthin, uh, which are great for retinal protection. And vitamin uh, foods with vitamin C, so for example, oranges, other citrus fruits, um, and then uh, other uh, antioxidants, for example, um, uh, let's see, uh, vitamin E rich foods, for example, avocado is wonderful for the eyes, and many people don't realize that. So having a variety of um, different types of foods, different colored foods is, are also very important. That's one thing. Now, the second thing that people don't really realize, but it's really critical for eye health, is UV protection. So our eyes are constantly being exposed to various different wavelengths of light, and UV light is emitted by the sun, and there are specific uh, wavelengths of UV that are that are most uh, potentially damaging for the eyes. For example, UV uh, A and UVB rays, and sunglasses can really help uh, prevent against that type of damage. And so, if you're choosing sunglasses, make sure that it has both 100% UVA and UVB protection, um, or it may also say UV 400. So that's equivalent to UVA and UVB protection. So those are the the simplest things you can do to really protect your vision, uh, hopefully for your lifetime. Very cool. Yeah, I think that's great. And I'm going to, we'll, we'll dive into some even deeper into all that. Um, you brought up something that I, it struck a thing in my head and I was like, Hey, let me ask this really quick. So what are some of the things you think um, like with macular degeneration and glaucoma and those, but I know specifically macular degenerations on the rise. Um, why do you think that is? And, and what are some contributors that are, are, are increasing that? Yeah, so that's it's a wonderful question. It's also a very complex question. So there are many uh, risk factors for macular degeneration, age being one of them, but not the only risk factor. Uh, there are potential genetic risk factors. So there are over 50 genes that have been identified that are associated with macular degeneration. But simply having the gene doesn't mean that you're going to get the disease. So these, this is one of those cases where epigenetics comes into play. So, you know, the, the factors that we're exposed to within ourselves, the internal environment that we have, the external environment, uh, external factors, for example, I mentioned before, sunlight, exposure to sunlight, perhaps toxins, um, you know, nutrition. So these are all factors that play into macular degeneration. But... Um, Specifically, I believe that inflammation is really the root cause of macular degeneration. What happens is that there are oxidative uh, changes that happen within the retina that lead to inflammation. And then uh, that inflammation leads to 
fluid and blood leaking out of vessels into the retina that causes the damage. So in, in essence, macular degeneration is a type of leaky eye syndrome. Uh, I know many people have probably heard about leaky gut, perhaps even leaky brain or even leaky heart, but there's actually leaky eye syndrome. And so um, if you can prevent that inflammation, then hopefully these proteins and fluids and blood won't leak into the retina and cause vision damage. Um, so, so those are some of the risk factors. Another um, kind of category of risk factor is, um, is actually think something that we can't control, which is pigmentation. So people who have fair skin, um, fair eyes, so blue or green eyes, and, fair, and light colored hair, for example, blondes, are more predisposed to macular degeneration and potential vision loss. And unfortunately, that's one factor that we can't change. Now, is there a reason why it's the, the, the blue and the green eyes that it's more common in? Well, it's, it's, um, it's hypothesized that there's less pigment in the retina to absorb some of those potentially damaging rays, and there's more risk for oxidative damage. But that's a theory. It's not been proven. Uh, we, don't, we don't know exactly why, but it's definitely been shown in many different types of uh, population studies uh, that, that um, those features, again, which we can't control, are significant risk factors. So for someone who has that, because they may hear that and go, oh, my God, that's me, oh, you know, know. <laughs> very, very scary. Like, oh, my God. And, and, uh, and, and I would say, you know, for people like that, you know, just try to do the best you can for prevention. So diet is critical and um, UV protection at all times. Now, um, I'm actually in the process of writing a book about uh, it's, it's hopefully going to be called the macular degeneration prescription for diet and, and lifestyle for prevention. Um, where I outline, you know, what are the best foods that you can incorporate into your diet for prevention of macular degeneration? What are some of the other lifestyle factors? For example, uh, exercise. How much exercise should you be getting um, for prevention of macular degeneration? What about some other things? For example, um, toxin exposures uh, and, and so forth. So, um, so that should hopefully be coming out next year. Uh, but, but there are things that can be done for, to decrease one's chance. Uh, despite your genetics, despite your pigmentation. And I was going to say, too, because even if you have that pigmentation, I mean, it's just it's like with epigenetics and everything and other factors, it, it, then you just have to be more aware and then utilize, like you said, good nutrition, um, taking some of those more beneficial antioxidants and things like that to make sure we're countering it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's critical. It's really critical. Now, and to start early. So, I, you know, one thing I tell my patients is don't wait until it happens. You know, you really should try to instigate some of these um, changes in your lifestyle and diet early. So it's even best to start it in childhood. Teach your kids to eat right. And that way they're protected. They're protected for the rest of their lives. And I know I've seen studies, too. I've read on that the, the, the power behind lutein is so powerful um, that it can yes. help. And then also um, acetaxin, I think I'm saying it right. Yeah, so astaxanthin. So astaxanthin yes. is a very interesting molecule. So it's actually, it's, it's a red pigmented molecule. And it's not normally found in humans. It's found in algae and many marine animals and even some birds like flamingos. It's actually found in the eyes of many, uh, many birds, for example, eagles. And it's believed to help them with their very sharp eyesight. And astaxanthin is, it absorbs different wavelengths, so it protects, but it's also a very strong antioxidant. And you can take it as a supplement, 
Um, and it's actually been shown in one, one large study to decrease the progression of macular degeneration. So in addition to lutein, um, astaxanthin, and there's also zeaxanthin, which is uh, a yellow pigmented molecule, and that's found in orange foods. And I would, the best example I can give would be like orange peppers are very rich in zeaxanthin. And that's found right in the middle of the retina, which is more, most susceptible for um, uh, in inflammation that leads to macular degeneration. So, um, so great, great supplements and, and uh, nutrients to include in your diet. Very awesome. Um, and if you like salmon, it, I hear, you know, especially the sockeye salmon has the highest uh, concentration because they, they, they feed off algae like crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, cause with eyes and all that, a lot of my, my studying, um, I get into like the biohacking world and how we maximize our sleep. How do we, how does, you know, blue light now is talked about a lot in the public. I have patients of my own. They'll come up to me and be like, doc, what do we do with blue light? My kid, you know, he likes to watch the tablet and we get into this whole discussion. Um, and I know there's also some myths into it and some truth and some facts and some mis misnomers and all that. Um, but real quick, how does blue light, artificial blue light, LED lights and those types of things, how does that play a role on your eye health? So a wonderful question and, and very, very important in today's digital world. So, so I'll just begin by saying that, you know, we're exposed to blue light all the time, uh, whether it's from our screens, whether it's from uh, the sun, which is actually a major emitter of blue light, or from bulbs, for example, CFL bulbs um, emit quite a bit of blue light. So it's everywhere. It's all around us. And in terms of the impact it can have in our eye health, um, there was actually an alarming article that came out uh, last summer in August of 2018, uh, where some researchers took some cells, they put them in a Petri dish, and uh, they exposed them to high levels of blue light, and they found that the cells died. And so what the researchers said was, oh, blue light will kill off your retinal cells and you'll go blind. And so there's, a, there's you know, a lot of headlines about that and a lot of concern, but the truth is that the researchers did this experiment in a Petri dish. It was not done in a human. It, it was not done in a live retina, either, either human or animal. So we don't really know what the long-term effects of blue light are. And interestingly, the cells that the researchers used in their study, they were cervical cancer cells. So, <laughs> so they're not normal, healthy cells in the first place. So, um, so just to get back to your question, so in terms of blue light and the retina, so blue light can potentially cause oxidative damage in the retina. It's, it's a very high energy, a short wavelength light. Um, but uh, again, there's no clinical study to show that it actually can cause vision loss yet. But what it can cause is a couple of things. So you mentioned sleep. So it can certainly disrupt sleep. Um, it can um, activate melanopsin uh, within the retina and it can disrupt, disrupt circadian patterns. So people can have a harder time falling asleep. So the general recommendation is prior to sleep, maybe one or two hours prior to sleep to avoid blue light exposure. Uh, so if you happen to be on a screen, you can use blue blocking glasses. And I have some tips about that that I can share. Or you can even use a screen filter app that can block out the blue light on your screen, whether it's from your laptop or from your handheld device or a tablet, or you can download it to, to all your devices. So those are some, some tips you can do for um, prevention of sleep disruption. And then the last thing blue light can actually do is... Um, it can trigger digital eye strain or some, what pe some people call computer vision syndrome. And uh, this has also been talked about a lot in the news and the media. Now, what computer vision syndrome is, is basically uh, difficulty seeing at the computer. So blurriness, 
uh, difficulty focusing, occasionally dry eyes, headaches, um, slight sensitivity, even neck pain. So this is like a constellation of symptoms that falls under this umbrella of digital eye strain or computer vision syndrome. And blue light can definitely trigger some of the symptoms, specifically the light sensitivity. And I know there's different wavelengths, the blue light, and I know some are more that the higher energy you want to avoid. And then some of the wavelengths are actually not that bad. It's actually like healthy, Um, like some that come from the sun versus, you know, the 460, 480. But do you know offhand what those wavelengths are? So just the listeners kind of have a gauge on that. Sure. So, um, so blue light is typically between 400 to 500 nanometers and uh, short wavelength blue light is 400 to 450. And those are the potentially most damaging uh, types of rays, which could potentially damage the retina. Now, most uh, blue light emitted by screens and artificial lighting sources fall into um, the slightly longer wavelength. So about 460 to 470. So not necessarily damaging to the retina, but certainly can uh, can suppress melatonin um, and uh, affect sleep patterns. And then the good wavelengths, which you're talking about, possibly the therapeutic wavelengths are slightly longer. So uh, 470 to 500 nanometers or so. And actually some of these wavelengths are used for many different types of disorders. For example, sleep, sleep issues, seasonal depression. Um, so it can be very therapeutic if it's the right wavelength. Yeah, because I was I, I have a friend of mine, he does um, he creates around the world called the Blue Room and they use blue frequencies or UV UV frequencies uh, in different specific wavelengths that actually help with healing massively. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been fascinating because I know in the public they hear blue light, they hear this, and they're like, Oh my god, blue light is horrible for you. We should avoid it at all costs. And I'm like, No, there's there's a good and a bad part to it. You just gotta figure out which one's which so you know. Yes, it's right. You're absolutely correct. It's not black and white. It's it's really the the wavelength that you're getting, and again, most of our devices do emit wavelengths that are not in the in the danger range, and and there's that therapeutic range as well. So, um, I actually was just learning about. I don't yet know much about it, but I would love to learn more about it. Is light therapy? So I know that some people use different wavelengths of light as as treatments. So, for example, red wavelengths. We we all know about infrared and infrared saunas. Uh, which are longer than red, but um, there are some red wavelengths that are thought to be uh, beneficial as well as um, uh, orange wavelengths. And, and I'm just learning about it. So I don't ha- yet have tips, but I hope to in the next <laughs> in the next couple of weeks. Be ready for your world to be shocked or not shocked, but amazed. Um, um, I've been studying that for about 10 years and it's uh, the different nanometers, 660 to 680 with the red light, orange therapy lights, and, you know, the, the deep purples or they, uh, how to activate and play a role on the mitochondria, energy production, reduce inflammation. Even there are some people who say um, some of that can even improve eye health. Um, they say don't put it in the eye, right? That's one of the big mm-hmm. no, you can't do that, which I totally agree with it. But there are some people who obviously are going to go outside that curve and be like, you know what? I've noticed through my own studies of red light therapy, not infrared, just red light therapy um, potentials. But just a full disclosure, I am not recommending that at all. So I <laughs> just have to say that. It's a fascinating topic. It's so fascinating and how it impacts our bodies in so many different ways, not just vision health, but in so many other aspects. Well, it's kind of interesting, too, because, you know, we're talking about blue light and uh, there are studies that have been shown, too. It does. The blue light doesn't have to hit the eye. You can just be exposed on your skin. 
because you have photoreceptor cells there. Yes. And, and they'll pick up on it. And they've done studies with um, deep sleep monitoring, uh, how melatonin is production, all these different things, and showing how just a little exposure of that blue light, how it disrupts us a little bit, um, mm-hmm. if it's in the evening when we shouldn't be exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I gotta let me know how what you think about all that because it's yeah. really real, and I love how you have an open mind to it because some people will be like, "Ah, oh, that's just heresy. I can't believe it." And, and I'll be like, "Here's all the science behind it. It's not like it's uh, um, just being, you know, this is a cool theory. Let's just go with it, <laughs> kind of a thing." And so many major discoveries were made that way. I mean, it may be you know kind of uh, on the edge in the beginning in terms of, uh, acceptance. But then once people start to actually look at it and find, Oh, wow, this, there's actually a ton of scientific evidence that something works. And so, um, it's really important to keep an open mind because there's so much we don't yet know. No. Um, What, what is it? I mean, I remember when I was in chiropractic school, we used to talk about how, how much we really know about the body. And, you know, they looked at like the, the, how many hormones are in the system and then based on the genes, how many hormones do they say we have? And it was like a, don't quote me on this. It was either 1% or 10%. I can't remember. Uh, But even like control systems, how much we really know. Mm -hmm. And so that's what keeps me like going, I'm open to anything because we don't, you know, if I keep an open mind, that's how you learn more and you you evolve and grow more. Um with that. But, uh, one thing to check out too, is like cold, cold laser therapy. That's, that's, uh, um, that gets into a lot of light, a lot of athletes use that, um, how they can rapidly heal from injuries, broken bones, heal faster, way mm-hmm. shorter in time. And a lot of cool stuff. It's, it's bizarre stuff. It's really cool. Um, but yeah, I digress. So <laughs> looking forward to learning about it. So thank you. <laughs> so you talked about blue light blockers. Um, love to hear what you have, what you recommend and those types of things. Great. So there, there are a ton of companies now that have popped up that are that are marketing these blue blocking glasses. And the most important thing is that, you know, you, you need to just get them checked to make sure that what they're what they're uh, doing is really what they're they're being promoted to do. So there was there was a consumer report study a couple of years ago in 2016 that looked at three of the major top sellers in terms of blue blocking lenses. And they found that only one of those three actually blocked out the majority of the blue light. The others blocked out maybe 30 or 40%. It was only one brand that actually did block out the majority of those blue wavelengths. So, um, So it's really difficult to know if you purchase blue blockers or if you get a coating put on your glasses that have a blue blocking um, you know, a mild tint to it. Does, is it really working? So here's a quick tip that can help you figure out if they're really blocking those blue rays or not. So you put the glasses on and you look at your screen and uh, have something blue on your screen. And if you can still see that color blue, then they're probably not really blocking out the blue light that they're supposed to be, um, that they're uh, promoted to, do, to be doing. So it's a quick tip. Um, and then uh, there's a couple of, of screen filter apps that people can can download that are great to block out uh, not just blue wavelengths, but you can actually adjust the settings to block out whatever wavelength you'd like. And so the the app that I really uh, I found the most useful is called Iris. And um, it has uh, different settings. So there's different combinations you can do. And there's about up to 27 different settings on this app. So you can have a healthy mode. You can have a sleep mode. You can have a complete blue blocking mode. You can have a monotone mode. So uh, there are many different combinations. And you can find what works best for you. But once I started using it, I just felt as though I'm on the computer for many hours a day, unfortunately. um, And it really just helped me feel more comfortable at the computer. And, um, and I adjust the setting as needed. So, uh, so it's really very versatile also. 
Well, I appreciate you bringing up the whole test because that I think is critical. You know, as in the markets, when something gets popular, then companies just come out and say, yeah, we're Blue Lock and we do this. And then, you know, it's one of those things where um, how do you test it, right, for the consumer? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so easy way to do that. And then uh, I'm using Iris right now. So um, great app for everybody out there. It's amazing. Um, is there... Um, what I wanted to ask. I want to get more into the nutrition. And we talked a little bit about um, some of the nutrition for macular degeneration, but let's say someone just got, you know, potentially, I don't want to say die, they got diagnosed or they're, they're a risk factor and they're concerned. What are, what are, you know, I know we talked about lutein, zeaxanthin, and those types of things um, and different vegetables. Is there any other regimens? Is there herbals? Are there supplements? Are there different things that you would recommend for somebody um, with macular degeneration? Yes. So, um, so I, I do recommend certain types of supplements. There are many, many eye health supplements out there. I mean, it's kind of mind boggling. If you, uh, if you Google it, or if you go to a health food store and you see a whole shelf of these eye health supplements, you know, which one do you get and which one is best? Um, so there's, what I found is in my research is that there's no single supplement that actually has everything that would be most beneficial. So sometimes it may be helpful to take a couple of different supplements, but, um, the, but the studies have shown that, uh, supplements containing vitamin A, C, and E, uh, copper, zinc are, are very beneficial. But in my research, I've also found that um, glutathione um, and then also, um, as I mentioned before, lutein, zeaxanthin, astaxanthin, these are also all very uh, protective against macular degeneration. And then there's a, another supplement, um, sorry, an antioxidant, which is called a super antioxidant called alpha lipoic acid. Um, it's very hard to find that. It's called ALA. It's very hard to find that from a food source. So it may be best to supplement that. Um, curcumin, which is uh, uh, found in turmeric, uh, can also be used as a botanical agent. Um, resveratrol, which is found in uh, red wine and red grapes, uh, also very potent. And uh, it's actually being studied right now in a clinical trial for macular degeneration. And even saffron has been studied. Um, or, or sorry, it's not, the study is not complete yet, but it is being studied for prevention of macular degeneration. So there are many uh, phytonutrients as well as botanical compounds that may be used um, for prevention purposes. Again, some of the studies are not completed. Some of them are not uh, you know, fully out yet. Um, the other um, sort of uh, integrative way to, to approach macular degeneration is um, I, some of my patients have done acupuncture for macular degeneration, for prevention. And again, the, the research has not been completed, but, um, but it's certainly something that can be tried uh, with um, you know, potential, not just vision benefits, but, but uh, other benefits as well. And um, some people have also tried uh, microcurrent electrical stimulation therapy. And as far as I know, there's no clinical trial to show that it works, but, um, but in anecdotal reports, it's been shown to... Um, to slow the progression of macular degeneration. So lots of different options, lots of things one can do uh, to prevent vision loss. Very, very cool. There's a, it sounds like it's a, there's a lot and there's, it's like a portfolio. You got to diversify it as much as possible. Yes. Yep. Yep. And again, you may have the gene for it, or you may have a family history, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have it. So, um, so I'll just give you a quick uh, personal story. So just for fun, uh, last year, I decided to do 23andMe. 
just just to see what I, what would come out. And I was actually in pretty good shape in most in most respects. But the one gene I had was the gene for macular degeneration. <laughs> and you know, as an ophthalmologist, that was pretty pretty uh, scary for me. But then I kind of you know I took a step back and I said, all right, let me put this in perspective. You know, I don't have any family history of it. I happen to have this one. Um, you know, one SNP that, that says I'm at risk, you know, is it really going to put me at risk? And, and I realized, you no, know, if I can, if I'm living the lifestyle, a healthy, you know, having healthy lifestyle choices, doing whatever I can for prevention, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, that I'm doing my part. So um, genes are not your destiny. Uh, yes, they may indicate that you're at higher risk, but not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll get the disease. I appreciate you saying that because a lot of times people think, and I still get this to this day where it's, oh, my, my mom had this, so I'm going to have this, and it's just genetics, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, oh, man, no, it's, uh, yeah. um, I'll be like, just go Google epigenetics and come back and let me know what you think. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that very much. I know you have another personal story, too. Um, you were telling me earlier before we got on the show about um migraines and how you have uh, an approach your own personal story first love to go in there if you don't mind and then we can get into the other stuff sure sure so so this is a story which really changed my career and changed my life so um so i always have some i had always had some migraines even since i was in college but over time it was getting worse and worse and um you know there was a period in my life about three or four years ago when i was I was under a lot of stress. I was not taking care of myself, not eating properly. I, mean, I, was, I was living off of junk food, basically. I was living off of pizza and diet cherry Coke and ice cream. And as a doctor, I mean, you would say, you know, <laughs> what, what is she doing? But, but that, that's what I thought was okay. I thought, oh, I'm going to be fine. I, you know, I just have to get by and get through my day. And this is, this is all I can eat. So, um, so I, was, I had a very poor diet, poor, poor sleep habits, but too much stress, um, so a lot going on in my personal life at work. And so my migraines developed into chronic daily headaches. And I had a headache every single day. And if you've ever had a migraine, I mean, it's, it's truly debilitating. I mean, it, it's, it's to the point where you just want to crawl under the covers and not come out. And that's how I felt every single day. But with that headache, I had to go to work. I had to see my patients. Um, I teach, so I was teaching residents and I was taking care of patients with migraine all at the same time. Meanwhile, I was, you know, really just barely getting by. And I went to the top headache specialists in New York City. I probably went to every single medical, major medical institution in New York City seeking out help. And all I would get was a prescription. At every visit, I would say, oh, here's the latest new migraine drug. Why don't you try this and come back in six weeks and tell me how you're doing? And inevitably, I would try it and it would not work. Uh, either it wouldn't work or it would give me side effects. And after about two and a half years of this, I said, you know what? This is not some, this is not the right way. This is not the right approach. I need to find a different approach. There has to be a better way. And so I started to do research. And what I found out was that there's actually quite a bit of work out there on uh, other ways to treat migraine uh, using natural methods. So for example, supplements, botanicals, uh, major lifestyle changes. And none of my doctors, none of my headache doctors had ever even asked me about what I was eating or what was I doing in my life? How much caffeine was I having? And you know, at that point, I was, I was having maybe seven or eight cups of some kind of caffeinated beverage a day. And I thought that was perfectly normal. You know, I, I didn't think that was a pro- there was a problem or that was triggering my, my symptoms. So, so after doing all this research, I came up with a regimen and started to implement it myself. And it incorporated um, some s- certain supplements, so magnesium, uh, riboflavin in high doses, 
um, feverfew, butterbur. These were some of the things I incorporated. And I majorly changed my nutrition um, choices. So I cut out all diet sodas. I started to eat more fruits and vegetables. Um, I cut out a lot of processed foods. And, um, and slowly I started to see improvements. And, and I, the, major, the other thing I really, uh, really focused on was trying to reduce my caffeine intake. Now, it's very difficult to go cold turkey, but, um, you know, slowly I reduced it down to maybe uh, one cup a day. And, and over, it was not overnight, but over several months, I started to notice a big improvement in my symptoms. And this is how I got turned on to, to functional medicine and integrative health, because I didn't even know that this whole world out there existed. Um, you know, being trained in the traditional medical um, realm. I, mean, I was, you know, I went through medical school. I did my residency. I was never really taught about the importance of nutrition. And so um, after being introduced to functional medicine, I said, wow, this is really incredible. You know, this approach that is not based in pharmaceuticals. It's not based in surgery. It's based in proper diet and lifestyle. And so I decided to pursue training in functional medicine. So I'm working with the Institute for Functional Medicine to get fully certified and it really changed my career to the point where I was in academic medicine. I had a full-time job uh, with a major uh, medical school, and I quit my job. And I said, you know, I have to be able to do what's right for myself and for my patients. And staying in this, in this, um, in this environment won't allow me to spend the time with my patients that I need to to help them feel better and function better. So I quit my job. I opened up my own practice. Um, I still teach. I still teach every week, uh, but that's, that's independent um, I still do some research independently, but but my practice in my practice, I really give my patients the time that they deserve to ha- to really focus on uh, natural ways that they can improve their their vision as well as their brain health. So it radically changed my personal life, but it also helped my uh, my patients significantly. And I've had patients who have had migraines for years. I mean, I had one patient who had migraines for over she was seventy years old. She had migraines for over fifty years, and she was not helped by all these different medications she tried, nothing was helping her. And I gave her my regimen. I said, I don't know, it worked for me. I don't know if it's going to work for you, but you can try it. And she came back six weeks later and she said, doctor, you changed my life. I mean, now I can function. I can go out. I can be social. I can go out to the store. I couldn't go out before because the fluorescent lights were too severe. And, you know, just hearing a story like that really just gives me validation that what I'm doing is right. It's right by my patients and I'm, I'm making a positive impact in their world. And, and that, that's all I need to hear. So, so that's my personal story. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really been a journey. It has. And I, and I, you know, I want to commend you for, you know, stepping out of the box and going a different route than what you were trained in. Cause a lot of times that, that can be scary. You know, this is what I know. This is what I was trained. This is how I do things. And then you went out a different realm and you're able to utilize different things to help people from a different perspective. So again, it's, it's uh, I commend you for that. Well, thank you. Yes. It was, it was a leap of faith, but I felt like I needed to do it and I'm so happy that I did it. Um, um, now you did bring up coffee and caffeine. I am just curious because there is so many different studies out there about this. You know, what is um, an adequate amount of coffee that someone should drink if you have that information? So, um, so that's a great question. Um, and 
What I would say is there is no set amount for everyone. So everyone has to figure out what is the best amount for themselves. Um, what caffeine does, and um, so not just from coffee, but tea and, and other beverages, what caffeine does is that it constricts, it works on adenosine receptors on blood vessels, and it constricts those blood vessels. So by constricting certain blood vessels in parts of the brain, it increases alertness, decreases sleepiness, um, and some believe that it improves cognition as well. So what, you know, in, in some patients with migraine, having caffeine can actually be beneficial because in migraine, one of the reasons why people get headaches in migraine is because the blood vessels dilate significantly and it causes uh, some of the tissues around the brain to stretch and swell. And, and then that's what leads to the headache. So if you can constrict blood vessels, then you would think that caffeine is a great thing. Um, and actually it is, it's actually in a major ingredient in many of the over-the-counter headache and migraine medicines, and many of them, like, for example, Excedrin migraine or Tylenol migraine, they have a little bit of caffeine in there to constrict the blood vessels. But what happens is if you have quite a bit of caffeine, a high intake of caffeine, eventually the blood vessels lose their responsiveness to the caffeine. And what ends up happening is that they begin to dilate. And you need more and more caffeine to achieve the same effect, that constriction. So it's it's almost like a perpetual, like a snowball effect, like a cycle where you have caffeine, it may help, but then you end up needing more and more and more. And so what I typically would recommend is if you're in that class of patients who are predisposed to migraines, try to limit the amount of caffeine you're having and try to keep it to... Um, to one cup or less. So let's say 100 milligrams of caffeine per day or less, or you, you know, perhaps even 50 milligrams or less if you're very susceptible to migraines. Uh, that would be my, my overall um, approach is to, to reduce it. And you can't just stop it immediately because you're, you'll have rebound headaches. So um, I typically recommend decreasing it by, let's say, half a cup a week and just slowly getting your body accustomed to having less caffeine in your system. Very cool. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's uh, I was my last question was going to be about the whole how to get off coffee or reduce it. So that, that's mm -hmm. great. Half a cup a week is uh, really, really nice to do. Um, yeah, there's so much research on it, though, that's like it, it there's conflicting and then there's positive, then there's conflicting, then there's positive. And uh, I'll have patients ask me all the time, they're like, do you drink coffee? I'm like, yeah, I have 160 milligrams a day. That's exactly what I have every single day. I have a, mm -hmm. I have a ritual, ritual that yeah. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and again, each person has to figure out what is their correct, what is, the, what is the amount that their body really needs. And there's been some recent work done even for um, Alzheimer's with caffeine. And it's actually shown that there's been, you know, some reduction in Alzheimer's progression with, you know, moderate amounts of caffeine intake. So um, it's a developing area of, of study for many fields. So not just um, brain health, eye health, but also for uh, cardiac, cardiovascular health as well. Um, a lot, of, a lot of work to be done, though. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I know we talked a lot about macular degeneration. I wanted to give some love to glaucoma and those things, too, because that's on the rise. My father has glaucoma. Um, every time I go to ophthalmologist, um, they would be like, oh, your dad has it. Okay, we need to check. We need to do this, this, this. And I'm like, I'm on top of it. I'm doing what I need to do. But go ahead. Mm -hmm. if you check it just in case if it makes you feel better. Um, but what are things someone can do if, again, I know genetics don't mean any, not that they don't mean anything, um, but you have more control than we think we do uh, with the epigenetics. But also if someone has it, what are some, is the, is the protocols very similar to macro degeneration or is there other things I should look into? 
Sure. So, so glaucoma is a very, um, it's a broad range of different types of diseases. So there's many different categories of glaucoma. There's open angle glaucoma, closed angle glaucoma. And even within those, there are many, many different categories. So it's a confusing topic. Um, yes, there is a genetic predisposition. So if you have a family member who has it, your risk is much higher. Certain ethnicities are more prone to certain types of glaucoma. So for example, African-Americans are more prone to open angle glaucoma. Um, Asians are more prone to narrow angle or closed angle glaucoma. Um, Eskimos as well. And it, you know, perhaps it has to do with the structure of the eye, the, the length of the eye, um, the collagen within the eyes. So there's a lot that we don't yet understand. But I would say for glaucoma, if you can try to... Um, uh, decrease oxidative damage, very similar to macular degeneration, that would be helpful. Um, exercise is also very important because you want to just increase circulation, you want to increase blood flow throughout your body as well as to the eye. Um, and then um, there are, that being said, there are certain types of exercises that should be perhaps avoided uh, if you have glaucoma. And the types of exercise I would say to avoid would be anything that rec uh, requires upside down positioning or head down positioning. So for example, uh, certain postures in yoga, that would be a no-no if you have glaucoma. Um, for some certain types of glaucoma, for example, pigment dispersion glaucoma, um, running is actually a risk factor for that type of glaucoma. So a, str a strenuous aerobic exercise can potentially release pigment that can cause damage in glaucoma. So it's a very complex topic. Uh, and what I would say is if you, you know, if you have any of these issues, for example, risk for glaucoma or macular degeneration or cataracts, if it runs in your family, or if you're just worried about it, I would say the most important thing you can do is to, as you did, go see your ophthalmologist once a year. Because some of these conditions are don't have symptoms in the very beginning. They're asymptomatic until they get to the very end stage and people have already lost vision and by that point, unfortunately, maybe irreversible vision loss. So if you, you know, concerned about it, go see your eye doctor. They can do the, the checkups. I know it can be kind of a chore, but but um, but it is important to, to go get those things checked because um, it's not something that you would be able to tell or even your primary doctor would be able to tell on a routine exam. It really requires a dilated eye exam uh, to, to pick up some of these uh, eye issues. Very interesting. And what about, uh, is there any women and men, are there different eye conditions that one will have versus the other? Great question. So, um, so one of the, the, there are many gender differences in terms of, of vision health, but the one thing I'll talk about um, is dry eye. So many, many people have dry eye and uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but significant portion of the population has dry eye and that number increases as people get older, but it's very common in, in women above the age of 50. And there probably is a hormonal component to it, for example, changing estrogen levels or perhaps even progesterone or testosterone levels. But, um, but many, many women who are postmenopausal have dry eye. And if actually, if in my practice, if I see a woman who's over the age of 50 and she does not have dry eye, I'm actually surprised. I'd say, wow, that's great because I would expect that you would have dry eyes. So, so again, we don't exactly understand the, the specifics of, of these hormonal changes, but I think there's definitely a component. Um, and uh, and what, with dry eye, what happens is that there, the, the surface uh, layer of the, of, the, um, of the tears, which is a, a lipid layer, it's an oily layer, begins to evaporate. 
And when that evaporates, then the tears evaporate and then the dryness sets in. And it can be very, very debilitating. So the goal of dry eye treatment is really to keep that surface layer of oils healthy, keep them intact. So um, a quick and simple um, uh, 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 intervention that you can do is to increase your omega-3 fatty acid intake. And so it was actually a women's health initiative study uh, done back in the 90s. I think the, the results were released where they looked at women Uh, above the age of 50 who had dry eye, and they found that those who had higher intake of omega-3 fatty acids, so the women who were eating more fish, um, uh, were actually in better shape. They had less dry eye symptoms than those who had less omega-3 intake. So so that's a quick uh, intervention that I typically recommend for my patients is try to have fish, uh, preferably mercury-free fish, uh, two or three times a week to help improve dry eye symptoms or decrease dry eye. Keep up the good work on that. And I say that because um, I have in my office, we have something called the basic four. And one of them is omega-3s because the body can't store omega-3. So we only get what we eat. And so fish oil is something I usually recommend a lot. And it's funny because some people will be very resistant to it. And I'm just like, listen, I'm just, this is the studies I've done. Here's just what I've done, all my research in. Um, But then I'll get a patient, they'll come and go, I went to see my eye doctor and they said I had dry eyes and they said, omega fish oil, it can help. And I'm just going, yeah, it's funny. Um, You've heard that before, right? Did it come from somebody else that you may have heard? Is there an echo in the (laughs) room? And then all of a sudden, they're like very religious with it. And I'm just like, all right, let's get on board and so forth. So, um, yeah, no, very would also uh, because, you know, oil based, lipid based and all that um, would besides the fish oil. Is there other I mean, I know that's what the study showed, but like having a better quality fats in your diet be also beneficial. Um, so it's always important to keep a balance of omega threes and omega sixes. I wouldn't say try to cut out all omega sixes because we do need them. Um, so having that balance and perhaps even there's some recent work being done with, um, omega nines and it's still really too early to say whether that's helpful as well. But, um, in terms of the oils that I typically recommend for my patients for overall vision health, so to help with dry eye, to help with macular degeneration as well, because fish oil and uh, omega-3s are important for macular degeneration as well. I typically recommend coconut oil and olive oil. Those are my two go-tos, and sometimes even avocado oil um, as, as uh, you know, great uh, oils to cook with and, and sprinkle on your salads and so forth. Yes, very, very good stuff. I love it. Um, one thing I see a lot, because um, I'm a pediatric chiropractor, so we work with a lot of children. 50% of my mm-hmm. practice is that. And um, I see a massive rise with children, younger and younger, with, with vision stuff, uh, nystagmuses, lazy eye, and those mm-hmm. types of things and whatnot. How could parents and listeners listening here um, be able to, you know, protect your children's vision and so forth and how to improve their eye health overall? So, um, so I would say the first thing is, you know, just observe your child and see, you know, see what the behaviors are. So does your child not want to read? You know, are they kind of after a few minutes, they're kind of trying to, to put the book away? Or are they tilting their head when they're reading or watching television? Are they squinting? So observe your child and see what the behaviors are. That That's the first thing. Because many kids, especially young kids um, under the age of six or seven, they may not be able to, to um, articulate what's going on. They may not understand really that they're having vision and that's why they don't want to do these activities like read or or watch television or or do certain other activities um 
So, so in, in that age group, particularly behaviors are important. And if you suspect that there's something going on, bring it up with your pediatrician first, and perhaps even go see a pediatric ophthalmologist um, to get the full exam, because oftentimes there are uh, simple fixes. So for example, uh, refractive errors, which are, uh, is, is the need for glasses, whether it's nearsightedness, farsightedness, or astigmatism, that's something that can be easily corrected with glasses. Now, I know some people say they really don't want to use glasses, or you know, there's a myth that glasses will make your vision worse. It, that's absolutely not true. Um, glasses don't make your vision worse. They're, they're, uh, uh, um, they're almost like a crutch. They help you see better, but wearing them won't actually deteriorate your vision. Um, wearing them without wearing them actually may deteriorate your vision. So, so that's one, one thing I always try to, to emphasize to my patients is glasses are not a bad thing. Um, and especially with kids, um, if you notice, for example, your eye, your child's eye is drifting, whether it's drifting in or out, or if it's jiggling at all, um, then absolutely bring it up with your pediatrician and go see a pediatric ophthalmologist because that is something that needs to be addressed early. Uh, some of these vision problems in kids, if they're not corrected by age 10, then the vision problem may set in and it may be irreversible. So it's really important to diagnose some of these issues early and get them addressed early. Very cool. One last question I have is if there's one.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling.